we are continuing on in a study in the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2, and here's the question that I want to ask you, uh, or actually that I want you to think about. Have you ever thought about or asked this question? What is God up to? What is God up to? Like you're seeing things happen in the world, you're seeing things happen in your own life, and you're saying to yourself, okay, I I don't quite understand what's going on here. Some of this stuff is painful, some of it's scary, some of it just seems quite strange. And and I think maybe God is working, but I have no idea what's God up to. You guys ever been there? What's God? And so here's the deal, man. Like in your Bible, this this theme shows up like all over the place. And I want to invite you in today to explore this question together. What's God up to? What's God up to, right? What's God in this confusing circumstance, in this strange situation, maybe even in this painful season, what is God up to? What's God up to? And so uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to catch you guys up. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. Uh, uh, It's the best one I've done all year on Exodus chapter 1, so go ahead and listen to that. Uh, but I want to just get you caught up. Okay, so, so Exodus is, your, is the second book of the Bible. And if, by the way, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there, Exodus chapter 2. If you're joining us online and you don't have a print Bible, no problem. Just go to Bible.com, and we're using the Christian Standard Version of the Bible today. If you all are joining us uh, in person, I believe you got a printout with it, and so you can make marks and notations on there. And then uh, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to get you one, and uh, those are available in the tables in the back. Please uh, take one of those as our gift to you. But I want to encourage you to follow along because Exodus uh, 1 and 2 especially, they're they're intricately interwoven, not only together, but also with uh, the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. So Genesis starts like with, in the beginning, God creates humanity. And the whole goal was for God to dwell in peace, blessing, and harmony with humans and for humans to multiply, uh, to go out and and, and fill the earth and to make the rest of the, uh, the earth uh, like the Garden of Eden, to use the raw elements that God had created. But the big idea was that God would dwell with his people. And then people, you're never going to guess, messed it up. People gave God the finger, turned their back on God, and basically said, I want to be God, not you. Of course, this creates a rift in the relationship. And so now you've got, uh, you've got humans expelled from the Garden, this direct presence in blessing and peace with God, and so the question is, will we ever get back to Eden? Will we ever get back to union with God? Will we ever get back to standing in the direct presence of God? Even though we have, uh, the Bible would call it sin, we've turned our backs on God. We've missed the mark. We've gone our own way. We've done evil. Even though we've done that, is there any possible way to get back to that Eden-like state of being in the presence of God? And luckily for us, the Bible does not end in Genesis chapter 3, but continues on. And it's going to answer that question. But you get to Genesis and you get to like the middle part of Genesis and you find that God is going to do a redemptive work through a person named Abraham. So he starts out Abram, but his name changes to Abraham. But God goes to Abram and said, I'm picking you. You leave your land. You leave your people. I'm going to make you, Abram, into a great people, into a great nation. And you're going to fill the earth. And, And through you... Your great nation, through you, all the nations of the earth, all the peoples, all the ethnos of the world will be blessed. And so you're like, cool, God's going to do a work through this guy named Abraham. But here's the rub. What, what, what did God promise Abraham that he would make him into a great people or nation? And what do you need to do? And I, I hope you don't mind. I'm not trying to be crass or anything, but you need to, like, start procreating. Yeah, right? Hallelujah, right? So yeah, thanks be to God for his many good gifts, right? Okay, so 
The, the thing is, though, is that throughout Genesis, there's this tension where, where the promised line of Abraham, they keep bumping up against these hindrances that God ends up overcoming. It looks like God's not at work. You know, there's, there's uh, 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 people who cannot conceive children. There's barrenness. There's threat. There's, there's promised ones being put under threat. And this whole thread through Genesis is this promised line coming under threat. And you, as the reader, are wondering, what is God up to? What's he doing? Because it doesn't seem like he's working, but then it seems like he's working. And so you get through Abraham's line. There's a great famine in the land. So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob has multiple children. Uh, In Jacob's day, they leave uh, the land because there's a famine. Uh Uh-oh. Right? In Genesis, we're wanting them to become a great nation, but but there's a famine. Uh Uh-oh. Right? Uh Uh-oh. And we're wondering... We're wondering what's God up to, and there's this great famine, but God doesn't seem like he's working, but then it turns out he's working. And through one of Jacob's kids, Joseph, actually is sold into slavery into Egypt, but because of God working behind the scenes, he actually elevates Joseph. So Joseph figures out this plan where during the seven years of, 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 uh, of abundance, he harvests all this stuff, and then he keeps it for the seven years of famine. And so Jacob's family, the, the, fa- the promised line... Uh Uh-oh, we're wondering what's going to happen to them. Are they going to die? They actually go into Egypt where Joseph is. Lo and behold, God's at work, and God provides for them. And so they settle in Egypt, and then this is the end of Genesis. We're wondering this small group of about 70 people, this little clan, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to become a great nation? Then you go to Exodus chapter 1, which we talked about last week. And in Exodus chapter 1, you see that this small clan of people has been fruitful and multiplied, and now they're like swarming all over Egypt. Then Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, who didn't remember all that stuff about Joseph, many years later, a new king comes to power, and he's threatened by this, pe- this promised nation, this promised people. He's afraid that they're going to take up, uh, take up arms and, and conquer him. And so what he does is, in, the, in an act of uh, xenophobic, uh, ethnocentric sub- like subjection, he, he says, all right, all the Hebrews, that was the, the children of Abraham Hebrews, that was their name. So the Hebrews, he puts them all into slavery, and then that doesn't work. They continue to be fruitful and multiply more. And you're thinking, oh, no, if Pharaoh gets his way, you know, this line, this promised line, it's not going to work. And then Pharaoh's so scared of losing his power, he says, I want you to kill all the boys. You guys, are acting, you, you guys have heard this before, huh? You're not even shocked. It's shocking. It's horrifying, right? And he, he, the first in chapter one, he, tell, he tells these two midwives, hey, when you're delivering uh, babies, check and see if it's a boy. If it's a boy, kill it. And these two midwives are like, nah, bro. And they actually deceive Pharaoh at peril to their own life. They deceive Pharaoh. They make up a lie, a story, and then it somehow deceives Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh, the very last act of Pharaoh in that chapter is he tells everyone in Egypt, if you see a Hebrew boy, throw it in the Nile. You guys got me? And we're wondering about this promised line. We're on the edge of our seats, right? What's going to happen? Great question. Let's take a look. Are you guys excited? Yeah, because I'm I'm really interested to see what happens. Okay, so uh, what's the question we're asking? What's God up to? Okay, so 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 here we go. Okay. Now, a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. Notice that we don't have their name, their proper names, but we have their tribe, their descendants of 
Levi, okay, so check this out. So what we know about Levi back in Genesis was Levi was one of two brothers, and and, and this is a horrible story, and I'm actually not going to go into the details, but something real bad happens to their sister, and to avenge their sister's honor, they go and they kill a whole village of people. This is not in your children's Bible, right? In fact, you guys want to know why children's Bibles are only this big? Because most of the Bible Bible stuff is, like, horrifying, right? Like, could you imagine reading that to your children at bedtime? Like... Oh, and by, by the way, can I give you guys a pro tip, parents? Don't do the Noah's Ark story. Like, yeah, oh, look, there's a little cute giraffe. There's a little, there's a little bunny rabbit. Yeah, and where are all the people? Floating out in the water. They're engorged corpses because of God's great justice. Or you would tell your kid that before bed? Don't do that. Pro tip. Pro tip. Okay. So now what do we know about Levi? Is that he was one who, would not, who could not suffer an injustice done. He was a person who would rise to action. He would, he would not suffer an injustice. Okay, that's one of the things we know about Levi. Okay, so now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. So you've got two people from this tribe uh, who are known for like not suffering an injustice. Check this. The woman became pregnant, gave birth to a, and what's supposed to happen to the kids according to Pharaoh? You throw them in the, in the Nile. Okay. When she saw that he was beautiful, that, I actually don't like that translation because every mom thinks their kid's beautiful and most of them are wrong. But, but I, don't, I, don't, I, don't li- I don't like this translation. It actually is uh, it's tov or good, which, um, which is the word in Genesis, uh, in Genesis where God saw it and it was good. It's tov. That's the Hebrew word. We're going to get kind of Bible nerdy today. I hope that's okay with you. If it's not okay, I've got a list of great churches for you uh, to check out. So, gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was tov, good, she hid him for three months. Why did she hide him? Because what was Pharaoh going to do? Throw him in the Nile. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket, not a great translation. And here's why. This word in Hebrew, the only other time it's used, uh, we translate it basket here, but the other time it's translated is ark. It's the, it's the same word for what Noah put all the animals in his family in. Because, you see, Noah was saved through the waters. He was saved through the waters. The waters were going to kill everybody, but Noah was saved through the waters in, in an ark. Okay? And so this is like a miniature ark. She makes a miniature ark for him and coated it with uh, asphalt and pitch. The same things that got coated uh, on Noah's Ark, great, okay. She placed the child in it, in the ark, and set it among the reeds. TV time out. How many of you guys have ever, uh, like, seen the movies about Moses? And, right, there's always this scene where, like, the, it's usually, they'll refer to it as the Red Sea, like the Red Sea parts. I, it's not actually Red Sea, it's the Sea of Reeds. Yeah, so, so, when, so if you skip ahead uh, in Exodus, when, when Moses leads the people out of Egypt, they, they're being chased by Pharaoh who wants to kill them, and they pass through, so God does a miracle where he parts the waters of the Sea of Reeds, and the people of Israel, hold on now, the people of Israel are saved through the waters. And the waters mean death, right? Water, the waters in your Bible, by and large, mean death, the watery abyss. They're saved by going into death. Do you guys see it? So how's Noah saved? In an ark through, through the watery abyss. What's going to end up happening to uh, uh, the, the people that Moses saves is they go through death. They go through the waters to find redemption. Notice that with Moses, you get a miniature foreshadow of what's about to happen. What happens to Moses is what happens to the people. 
The Bible is so cool. Okay, check this out. Uh, sea of Reeds by the bank of the Nile. <clears throat> okay, where did she put the baby? In the Nile. What did Pharaoh say to do with your baby? Put it out. Did she obey or disobey Pharaoh? This is, this is compassionate subversion. No? And at this point in time, you now have two midwives who engaged in this conspiracy of compassion to subvert the king of this world who is trying to claim an injustice or demand an injustice. Now you have his mom, the, the daughter of Levi, right, who could not suffer an injustice. Notice, okay, this theme will keep going. Check this out. Uh, so are they obedient or disobedient? Right? Okay, so check this out. Then his sister stood at a distance. Okay, so now we've got a sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. So where is he? He's in an ark in the Nile among the reeds. Okay, great. And we don't know why, actually. Like, is this uh, bad parenting? Is this good? Or is, is she hopeful? Is she in despair? We, we don't actually know. Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, who ordered that the babies get thrown in the water? And so who do we have? Lo and behold, ah, Pharaoh's daughter goes down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. Where was Moses at? Right in this section, okay. She saw the basket or the ark among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw the child. And there he was, a little boy. Notice what he's doing. Okay, pay attention to that. Okay, somebody you're going to have to remember when we get near the end. You're going to have to remember crying, okay? So somebody, one of you guys, I ain't going to remember. Yeah, I'm up here working, so you guys got to remember. Okay, crying. She felt sorry for him. Again, compassion. And what did she say? This is one of the Hebrew boys. She looks upon the baby and identifies Moses as what? A, a Hebrew boy, okay? So notice that. She gives him an identity of Hebrew boy. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go? <laughs> I love this. She just says he's one of the Hebrew boys. And there's the sister. Should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse this boy for you? I wonder if I could find anyone who fits that description. Right? I, I mean, she, okay, so I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, I, I just want to make a little bit of a case. I think that we're meant to understand Pharaoh's daughter as being in on the conspiracy of compassion. Okay? Notice what she, she must have known what dad ordered. She definitely knows what she's supposed to do with this baby. And now notice what happens. I, I think that Pharaoh's daughter is wise to what the sister is proposing. Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. Okay, so check this out. What Pharaoh wanted to do was kill every boy because these, these Hebrew people, God's promise, frankly, was a threat to his power. And notice that through the humble, compassionate subversion of two midwives, one mother who was in the uh, clan of Levi, one princess, and one sister. So five women are making Moses' life possible in this moment. Through their conspiracy of compassion, Moses is saved. And moreover, don't you see the irony of what's going on here? <clears throat> Who's paying the mom's wages? Where does Pharaoh's da daughter get her money from? Okay, do you see? 
do you see the irony here? You see, the, Pharaoh thinks he's in charge. But notice what God's doing. He's using the faithful, humble subversion, this conspiracy of compassion of these five women to bring about his ultimate redemptive plan. What's God up to? Right? You'd see a baby in a, a little ark in the reeds, and you're like, is this God's plan? Ha! How is this God's plan? What is God up to? Do you see how, even though, now notice this. Has God entered the scene yet? Have we, have we heard from God yet? Nope. He has not been an active player in the narrative thus far. Okay, keep that in mind. Oh, there's this song, um, even when I don't see it, you're working. Yeah, you guys seen it? Okay, so what's God up to? All right, so uh, Pharaoh's daughter became her son. Okay, uh-oh, hold on. Whose son does he become? Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, so now Moses has a new identity. Let's keep going. She named him Moses. I love this. Because she said, I drew him up out of the waters. Okay, so this, um, uh, 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 his name is uh, uh, Moshe, because I brought him up out of the Moshe. So it's a play on words. Moses in Hebrew is a play on words. Okay, it sounds like drew him up out of the water, but it's actually in the wrong tense. It actually implies he will bring up out of the water. And what does Moses do? What do we know that Moses eventually does? He leads the people, what? Through like the Sea of Reeds, Pharaoh's army's chasing, and what does he do? He leads them through. He draws them up out of the waters. Do you see it? Okay, here's the other, I mean, this is so crazy. Here's the other thing. In Egyptian, it could also be um, uh, like son of. So Moses or Moses, like Tutmos, M-O-S-E, Tutmos third or whatever, could be son of. And it's interesting because he's the son of whom? Okay, so this is interesting. Who, who is he the son of? Well, now we've got him being identified as the son of two of these women, right? Okay, this is going to come back here in a little bit. Okay, here we go. Oh, by the way, um, hi. Here's my objective, okay? I want to leave you with more questions than answers. Because what we're reading is ancient meditative wisdom literature, not a car manual. So what I want is my, my objective today is for you to receive this and then to walk away and think about it for the next 27 years. And then just to go like, hmm, hmm, hmm. And here's even better. I'll do you one better. I think that the best way, if you really want to mine this wisdom out of here, is to get with a bunch of people who are different than you and talk it through. In fact, we gave you guys uh, some, um, some uh, what are these called? Bookmarks. We gave you guys some bookmarks with some great questions. Here's your assignment. Take some people from your church out to lunch today. Ask some of these questions about Exodus 2. And then maybe you'll become wise in 100 years. Okay. All right, so let's keep going. I drew him up out of the water years later after Moses. Oh, yeah, we got that. Oh, wait, 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 wait. We didn't get there. Years later, okay, so now Moses is, me, 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 he's grown up. Okay? What happened in the in-between? We don't know. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their what? Okay. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. Okay. So let's just notice a few things. One, notice that we've got Egyptian and Hebrew here. What is Moses? 
Well, he's both. In fact, I think Moses is wrestling with an identity problem. So he sees an Egyptian striding a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, remember his mom and dad came from which tribe? Um, Levi, right? And Levi, we knew, could not suffer an injustice. And it was through his mom and sister also having that same temperament, that same values, that we're not going to suffer this injustice. We're going to do what's right, if not by Pharaoh's eye, by God's eye. And notice what they do. Excuse me, notice what he does. He sees an injustice. And, there, and, I, and, and there's no indication that he knew necessarily that he was a Hebrew yet. Like, did Moses know that he was Hebrew? The narrator tells us that he is. But did Moses know? It could well be that Moses just sees an injustice. In fact, I, later in the text, we'll see that he, he doesn't seem to have a, an ethnic consideration when he stands for justice. Watch this. Looking all around, another way to say it is he looks to his right and to his left. And remember when Moses goes through the waters, where are the, where's the waters? Right? The next time you get this phrase is how the waters part. And so here you have this redemptive moment where Moses is going to stand in and step up for justice. And Moses looks around, but notice where Moses doesn't look. He looks to his left and he looks to his right. Where does he not look? Now watch this. Moses has a desire to make things right. But does he? Moses takes matters into his own hands and exacts justice according to his version of it. He does not say to God, God, help me understand what to do here. He doesn't pray. He just acts. And he acts violently. And he strikes down an Egyptian and buries him. So now he's doing deception Uh, either manslaughter or murder, depending on how you want to look at it. And he's leading, right, with this core principle, this core value of uh, seeking to do right, seeking to make things right, seeking for justice, right, standing up for the oppressed. But he does it by his own power and by his own means. And what does he do? He just propagates more evil. Do you see it? Might that be a word for us today? Hmm. That the ends don't justify the means. All right, let's keep going. Uh, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews. Now, what did we have in the first scene? Who were the two people fighting? An, an Egyptian and a Hebrew? Now what does he find? Two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? Now, here's the, here's the trick. Guess what Moses is going to become? But has God made him that yet? You see, he's, he may be trying to step into a position, step into a calling that God has not called him to yet. Do you see it? All right, let's keep going. Okay, who made you commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. So he buried the dude, the corpse, because he wanted to hide, right? He wanted to hide it. And guess what happened? He was found out. So is Moses in trouble? Okay, so scene one, he sees a Hebrew and Egyptian fighting. He steps in, he slays the Egyptian, in his mind, the wrongdoer. And so he propagates evil, even though in his mind he thought he was doing the right thing, doing the justice thing. And then here now, he sees how that has produced not only sour fruit, but also he's going to be in trouble with Pharaoh. Watch this. 
Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. Now, has Pharaoh been trying to do this for a while? And we, I think we get the implication that, that his daughter has been protecting Moses, but now that Moses has done manslaughter or murder, that protection ain't going to work no more. Do you guys maybe see that in the text? Okay. Uh, Moses is growing up. But, but what is God up to? Here's this, like, warrior for justice stepping up and, and in his mind doing the right thing, and, and it keeps not working. In fact, it keeps, like, failing on him. And now Pharaoh found out and is trying to kill Moses. What happens to Moses? Moses flees from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Another way to put that is he, like, settled in the land. So it's not, we're not to read the narrative like, these two Hebrews were talking to him. He turned, ran all the way to Midian, and then sat down. Right? So he made his way to Midian, and then he settled there. Okay? Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Seven oftentimes is used as a literary device to refer to the number of perfection. Right? So Moses, at this point in time, we don't think that he's been looking for a lady, but now there's seven daughters, and notice what happens. Where's Moses? He's sitting down by a... Well, okay, good. So they came to draw water and filled the troughs uh, uh, to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue. Third act, right? Remember the first one was the Egyptian and the Hebrew, and then it was the two Hebrews, and now he's like, okay, third time's a charm. Okay? Moses, notice Moses is a man of action. He's a person who steps in when he sees an injustice, and he steps in and comes to their rescue and watered their flock. Also, now what we get here is some humility. Notice that he takes the extra step of doing what? Watering their flock, okay? Now, this could be an act of compassion. It could also be a Rico Suave move. I don't know. Like, hey, girls, can I get you something cold to drink? You know? Okay. I don't know. When they returned to their father, Rule, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, an Egyptian, wait, is he Hebrew or Egyptian? Do you remember that Pharaoh's daughter called him a what? Hebrew. And now the daughters of Rule call him what? Okay, do you think that he's got an identity conflict going on here? Which one is he? Okay. It seems to me like Moses, we're meant to understand that Moses is in a shaping season where who he is is being shaped by the things that God is allowing him to experience. You guys ever been there before? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he, he asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? This guy's like, this is great. He'd make a great son-in-law. Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, of course, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. So now he is married, and she gave birth to a son whom he named Gershon. Oh, this is so cool. Okay, so Moses, I think the text is leading us to believe that Moses here is experiencing all of this pain and this suffering and this confusion to shape him into the type of person that God wants to use to bring his promised people out of captivity. But God is using these circumstances, God is using these painful moments to shape and mold Moses. Moses, I think, in all of this, is still not confident with who he is, 
Watch. This name of son, this, the, the son's name is Gershom, and Ger means stranger. When you get names are super important in the Bible. But this Ger, he even names his firstborn son stranger. I think that Moses is viewing himself as a stranger in a strange land. I don't know where I fit. I don't know who I belong to. I don't know where I am. I don't know whose people I am. And he names his son Gershon. Notice why. For he said, I have been a stranger, a resident alien in a foreign land. Does he mean Midian or Egypt? Does he mean Rule's house or Pharaoh's house? Notice the shaping. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. Now, are we happy that the king of Egypt died? Uh, right, I mean, for you guys, right? You guys aren't happy that the king of Egypt died. But, like, if you were subject to uh, pain and suffering and the, the murder of the firstborn son, are you guys happy the king of Egypt died? Right? The king of Egypt died. And what do we hope will happen? Liberation. We're hoping that the king of Egypt will die, we'll get a new king, and we'll have what? Okay, here we go. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. Okay, so it keeps going. Okay, even though there's a new Pharaoh, it keeps going. And they cried out, and their cry for help became, uh, their, their cry for help because of the difficult labor, what did the cry do? Ascended. It ascended to God. Now notice this. What was Moses doing in the ark in the, in the reeds when Pharaoh's daughter found him? He was crying out. And what happened? God provided a means of redemption from the death waters. Hmm? That cry went up to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter, metaphorically, came down. The cry goes up, the Redeemer comes down. The cry goes up, hmm? and God comes down. God heard their groaning. He's now acting. Do you see it? We've gotten this far into the book of Exodus, and God has not yet acted in the narrative, and yet here he acts. He heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God what? God knew. If you're an Israelite in that scene, are you happy about this news? Because our cries have gone up, and what's about to happen? God's going to come down. Throughout this entire narrative, we have not seen God acting, have we? Well, he hasn't been a named actor, right? But have we seen God acting? You see, sometimes it's really confusing when we see the world working as it is, uh, experiencing the things that we're experiencing, uh, the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We, we maybe even would say, God, why don't you answer me? God, where are you? God, what are you what are you up to? And it's really good to know that God hears and knows. Hmm? That when our cries go up, the Redeemer comes down. Now Moses tried to execute justice in his own way, according to his own power. And it ended up just beginning more evil. But Moses, as a Redeemer, points us to the ultimate redeemer. For all of humanity have turned their back on God, going our own way. But in this way, our own way, which ultimately just leads to chaos, corruption, and death, we cry out to God 
God, save us from this mess. God, redeem your people. God, would you save me? And when the cry goes up, what happens? The Redeemer comes down. 